0: Good morning, beloved. That was a sweet offertory. Thank you. I don't know if, has Dennis been in worship with us leading before? Ah, well, thank you, brother. It's good to have you. What a different sound and a good, different look and sweet, sweet worship. Well, it's good to see you, my sweetheart church. Uh, Ellis and I were in Mexico last week with about 34 other guys and we were building houses along with Pastor Jeremy. He brought a group from Fresno and uh, and a group from Oak Harbor Wood, on Whidbey Island. And uh, we built three houses. We built a, a food bank, a, a double-wide food bank. And uh, it was, you know, all the high school kids know about this. It, it was just a great experience, although it was the hardest site I've ever worked. We had a landslide on one of the sites that so we had to build a retaining wall just to have a place to Pour the concrete, so maybe you'll hear more about it later. But we got it done, and uh, it was uh, a great time of fellowship. Man, if you haven't ever done this, next year, the weekend after Mother's Day, put it down right now. It's a, it's a life changer, and you'll, you'll be blessed by it. Uh, oh, what I wanted to say was, I first thing I, I did when I got back was listen to Ryan Palmer's awesome uh, sermon from last week. What a gift we have in him and his leadership of our young people. And I also got a chance to listen to Eric Anderson's soliloquy at the end of the service, which was equally powerful. Uh, Ryan is already on the path to become a pastor. He's doing seminary, but I sent an email to Eric said, okay, boy, I think the pastoral uh, ministry is in your future. Uh, what are your plans? He said, well, I'm going to get a PhD and work for RZIM. And I have no doubt that that's going to happen. But anyway, that was a blessing too. Uh, so thank you for sharing that gift. A few weeks ago, Cindy and I were sitting at Menchie's. How many love Menchie's? Yeah, all of this group does. The rest of you don't know what you're missing. And uh, I would have it my regular tart flavor with the uh, the fake fish eggs that are on top of it. It was awesome. Anyway, Cindy and I were uh, sitting there and up walked one of our graduating high school seniors, Lexi. And she had a couple of her friends with her. And Lexi had just been uh, accepted into Oregon State, so we were talking about universities and mascots and the beavers, and I said, well, I just read something interesting about Whitman University. Not Whitworth, Whitman in Walla Walla. Uh, you, you probably have heard of it. It was uh, formed in honor of a missionary, Marcus Whitman, who served in that area, who was martyred along with his wife in that area. Whitman used to be a, a Christian university, but it is as so many Christian universities strayed away in the years, over the years, and uh, I was reading that they had just voted to abandon their mascot. They used to be the Whitman Missionaries, but they're not going to be the Whitman Missionaries anymore. Lexi said, "Well, what are they going to be?" And I was feeling—I mean, it's probably appropriate—they're not at all Christian—but I was still feeling a little snarky and. And so she said, "What do you think? What will their mascot be?" And I said, "I don't know. Probably the Whitman apostates." And, um, and then the, the girl standing next to her, with a horrified look, she said, "The Whitman prostates. What kind of a What kind of a mascot is that?" Well, it wouldn't be a very good one, actually. It, not very appropriate. But, but neither was missionary anymore. This morning we are going to continue as we draw near the end of our journey through the story, we're going to take a look at a, a seemingly inappropriate, very unlikely Christian missionary. His name was Saul. And if you'd known Saul in his other early years, you would have known him as a brilliant, kind of self-centered, aggressive, uh, up-and-coming young Pharisee. He had his eyes set on a seat in the Sanhedrin, which was kind of the, the high-water mark of a career if you wanted to be a, a Jewish clergyman. And, and Saul was going to make his bones, he was going to make his name by crushing out this, this new little movement uh, of group of, of folks that were following some prophet from Nazareth whom they claimed had been raised from the dead. And he was... Obviously horrified by this and he, uh, the first time we're introduced to Saul is when he is standing watching over the cloaks of the men who threw stones at Stephen and, and until he was dead. The first martyr of the Christian church. And Saul, we are told, stood there watching over the cloaks and he was, he was giving approval. But, uh, he wasn't done there. That kind of only whetted his appetite. And so Saul not only was interested in persecuting Christians in and around Jerusalem, he got permission to head north, clear up into Syria, to Damascus. And he was determined to find, arrest, and extradite Christians who might be up there. Bring them back down to Jerusalem and persecute them as well. He was going to crush this incipient movement. He was going to strangle it in the cradle. A funny thing happened, though, on the way to Damascus. Saul was greeted by the risen Christ who knocked him to his keister, who blinded him, and who persuaded him that he really wanted to change direction in his life. He became, of course, the, the greatest missionary the Christian church has ever known. Paul of Tarsus, as we know him. That was last week. This week, we're going to pick up kind of where that left off. And, and this week's uh, chapter of the story actually jumps ahead many years. Saul, after he was met by Christ, kind of went into a time of exile. He he was sent to his hometown of Tarsus. Uh, he was mentored by that great Saint Barnabas, the son of encouragement. I can't wait to meet that guy. What a, a man he must have been. And then amazingly, he, uh, Barnabas and Saul were invited to come and do a church. They were invited to come up to a place called Antioch, which was the home of the first non-Jewish Christian movement. The Gentile movement started in, in Syrian Antioch at the church. In fact, that's the first place that we were called Christians. So unless you have Jewish background, that really is our home church, the Antioch church. And Saul and Barnabas were called. They said, would you come up and be our pastors? Saul must have been kind of like the pastoral intern. Barnabas was the senior pastor. And uh, and so they, they went up there and they served for a year. And the Holy Spirit was at work doing amazing healings, working in amazing ways, raising up great new leaders. And the Spirit began to stir something new in their hearts. If they could be saved by Jesus, they felt like there were other Gentiles who needed to hear this message. And so when we turn to chapter 13, we are turning to the beginning of what would be an epic adventure. As Saul and Barnabas and others strike out on, on behalf of the church in Antioch to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to the world that had never imagined such a thing. So I want us to turn, if you will, to uh, to Acts chapter 13. And I'll read the first few verses to launch us. So here we go. Acts chapter 13. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, would you speak to us too? We believe you do. We believe you can. And we pray that our hearts would be open to hear what you have to say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So this new fledgling church is launched and already the Holy Spirit is beginning to raise up teachers and prophets and preachers, great leaders. And we hear some of them identified. The first on the list is Barnabas. Remember, first always matters in lists in in the Bible. And the last on the list is Saul. In between, you might have noticed something interesting. Two of the men that were raised up to be the great, strong leaders in the early uh, Gentile church were black men. One was a man from the area of Niger, another one from an area of Cyrene. Both of those were black men. Another man was a friend of Herod the Tetrarch, who became the the king at the time of Jesus' ministry. How ironic was that, that the friend of one of the brutal kings became one of the great leaders of the Gentile movement. But as they prayed about it, it was not those men that were set apart. It was Barnabas, the first on the list, Saul, the last on the list. And they were set apart for what we know as the first great missionary journey. Now, if you read through the chapter next week, you're going to kind of be astounded at the scope of it. It's, it's huge because it covers not only all of Saul's missionary journeys, but uh, many of the letters that he wrote to the churches he founded there. It is impossibly large, monumental, epic work. And so I want to just kind of summarize it by taking a quick look at that first missionary journey that they were sent on. So take a look up on the screen, and it'll help you to get some perspective. <clears throat> That's the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, Israel is down south of Syria, and they started off in Antioch. You see the Antioch on the right-hand side. They went to Seleucia, which was the uh, port city, caught a boat, and headed for Cyprus. Cyprus was Barnabas' hometown. That's where he came from. And so they ministered on the east side of Cyprus, walked across to the west side, and ministered there to such great effect that the Roman ruler of Cyprus, the pro-council, came to faith in Christ. That's pretty cool. They got on a boat. They headed from Cyprus up to the little port town of Perga. Here's something very interesting. It's a little footnote, but it's fascinating. Because along with Saul and Barnabas was a young man named John Mark. He, you'll know him as the guy who ended up writing the gospel. But at this time, John Mark got spooked. We don't know why. But at Perga, we are told that John Mark abandoned them and headed back to Jerusalem. This ticked Paul off, frankly. He never he never got over that, or not for the longest time. Uh, and it would be a source of division between him and, and Barnabas, who wanted to give the kid another chance, the son of encouragement. So Barnabas and Saul, they headed on without John Mark up to Pisidian Antioch, a different Antioch. I think there were seven Antiochs, by the way, so it's hard to keep them all straight. Um, I was just in Pisidian Antioch. In February, I led a group to uh, Turkey, and that's where one of the places that we stopped at. And here's a picture of me standing on the wall of the synagogue that Paul preached in when he was in Pisidian Antioch. How cool is that? What you don't realize that as the direction I'm looking up there, there's a, a road. At the other end of that road on the high point of Pisidian Antioch sat a spectacular temple that was dedicated to Caesar Augustus. So the irony of those two places, Paul, even as he was preaching, would have been looking out in the distance, and he's talking about the lordship of Jesus Christ, the one and true Lord, and looking in the distance at the temple that was dedicated to this God-man, Caesar Augustus. It's pretty cool. Paul preached to great effect. We are told that the entire city came out to hear him, but not the entire city was happy with him. There were some who were really stirred up because of what he was saying, and and so they got word of that, and he skedaddled. <clears throat> and they headed to the next stop, which is Iconium. They preached there. Again, they stirred up a great interest. They also stirred up more trouble. And so they skedaddled from there, and they headed to the next town called Lystra. But uh, the, the troublemakers that were so irritated with, with Paul... Somehow he had a way of drawing out the, the venom in people. They, they got together from, from Antioch and Iconium, and they made their way down to Lystra. They found him, they dragged him outside of the city, and they, they tried to kill him. They stoned him, and they left him for dead. I take it as a miraculous work of God that after they left and returned home, thinking that their work was done, we are told that Paul got up, went back into the city. And not only did he go back into the city, he continues on down to the next town, Derby. And he preaches the gospel there. That in itself is pretty remarkable because I think if I'd gotten a beating like that, I'd say, okay, that's enough for my first missionary journey. But he continues on. And not only that, then he turns around when he's done preaching in Derby because he cares about the Christians that have, have received the faith. And he marches back along, back to Lystra, back to Iconium, back up to Antioch. How about you? Would you be ready to turn around and return to the city of your would-be murderers? I don't think so, but that's what he did. Then when he had checked in on the new Christians, he headed down to the harbor town, caught a boat. They headed back over to Seleucia and returned to Antioch with great joy, we are told. So that's a summary of the first of what would be three, at least three great missionary journeys. Here's the thing. It was 1,600 miles that they traveled. To put that in perspective, if last week when it came time for us to go down and do our Mexico build, instead of getting on an airplane, we had started walking and we walked the entire coastline of the west coast of the United States, got down to our build site in near Tijuana, finished our buildings and then marched back up by foot over the border to Bakersfield, my hometown, my, my roots, that would have been uh, 1600 miles that we traveled that's how far they walked and here's the irony the amazing thing is that that was the shortest of their journeys there're going to be two other journeys that are going to take him beyond that to asia minor into europe he's going to take another trek to rome where he brings the gospel right to the right to the house of caesar and ultimately some believe including myself that he might have even gotten as far as spain There is then an estimate that Paul, by the time he was done with his call of missionary outreach, that he had walked 14,000 miles. Put that in perspective. If you were to walk from the west coast to the east coast of the United States at the narrowest point, you could cross back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and almost back again seven times. It was a lot of shoe leather that they went through, but it turns out that sore feet and blisters was the least of Paul's problems because they were subjected to terrible abuse. We heard some of it in the story today of what happened to them when they were stoned at Lystra. Acts mentions other accounts, but it doesn't tell us nearly all that Paul went through. Luke tells us some of the things, but not all of them. Paul is actually the one who tells us more. Because when you turn to 2 Corinthians 11, he gives us an account of many of the things that he and his colleagues suffered for the sake of the gospel. Now, I want you to listen to this and listen to what is really being said with wonder at the, at the turmoil, the, the, the suffering that these men received for the sake of Jesus. Five times, Paul writes, I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled, and often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst, and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. A few weeks ago, I talked about what a flogging looked like. You'll recall that The victim was stripped naked and stretched out and they took a a lash that was comprised of several tails that were made of leather and at the end of each tail was a chunk of metal or glass and the intent was to lacerate that body until it was one open wound. Uh, The maximum number of lashes that you could receive during a flogging was 39 because it was believed that the 40th would kill the average man. The Apostle Paul says, I was flogged. Not once, not twice, not thrice, not four times, but I received 39 lashes five times, 195 lashes. He also tells us of another torture that was popular at the time, a beating with rods. The rods were the size of a a finger, and it was not one rod, it was several. If you have ever had a sibling that took a, a uh, a willow stick and whipped you on your bare legs, you might get some taste of it. But this was a handful of rods, and it would be brought against the bare back. It is said that that was so painful that it was like a red hot metal grate being pressed against your back. And Paul said, I received the rods three times. And the list goes on, doesn't it? He said, I was shipwrecked. I was hungry. I was beaten. I was snake bit. On and on and on the list goes. And when you're listening to this stuff, you try to imagine, would I have anything like that courage? I mean, you, you'd like to, to imagine that maybe if I felt the, the unction of the Lord, the Spirit upon me, if I if I was stoned and God spared my life and I was able to rise up, maybe I could go back and, and continue preaching. Perhaps I'd have that courage. Perhaps if I was pulled off to the side and, and flogged, received 39 lashes, perhaps after I'd healed up, I might have the courage to of my convictions to continue on and on again. But you really do wonder... If Paul ever reached a point where he said, that's enough. I mean, where he began to think after, what, 50 lashes, 100 lashes, 150 lashes, did he ever reach a point where he said, you know what? I've spilled enough of my blood. I have given enough of my flesh. It is someone else's turn. I'm ready to quit. I was talking with with my life group, a great group of guys that I meet with every week, Friday morning. By the way, you need to be in one if you're not. It's a life giver. We were talking about this, and and one of the men, I think, spoke for for all of us. He, He is a veteran. He has faced death in battle. And he said, I'd like to think that I am a brave man. But when I read this, I really have to say, I don't know if I could take it. I don't know if I would have reached a point where I said, I am done. It's someone else's turn to tap in. I have... Had it. And it's hard for us not to imagine the same thing if we enter into the the power and the horror of what we heard described. And so all week, as I've looked towards this monumental passage that we chapter that we're going to read, I've been asking myself this question What is it that would drive a man like Paul to endure these endless sufferings and privations? What is it? How could he do this? You might say, well, surely part of the answer has to be the Holy Spirit. Yes? He was filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Fifty-seven times in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit is is mentioned. Uh, It has been said that we call the Acts of the Apostles. We might better call Luke's book the Acts of the Holy Spirit because this is really about the Spirit of God. If the Gospels are there to spotlight the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, then surely the book of Acts is there to spotlight, to throw a stark spotlight on the work of the third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit. So maybe that was part of it. Surely it must be. Or maybe it was that Paul was so grateful. I mean, when you think about who he was and what he had done, that he was about the work of persecuting and even murdering people who were followers of Jesus the astonishing fact that this Jesus would appear to him on the road to Damascus and would forgive him, would love him, would save him, and would call him to his purposes. Surely he never forgot that. And so maybe as a great deep sense of gratitude for a Christ who had saved him. All of those things might be true, but I think there's something else. As I As I troubled myself about this all week, I suddenly realized it's staring me right in the face. This week we're hosting Sold. You already heard Ellis speak about that. Uh, And it brings, it seeks to bring attention. It's hard. It's a hard thing to go through. A hard thing to listen to and to experience. But it is trying to speak truth, to cast light on this blight of human slavery, trafficking there are 35 36 million human beings around the world who are held in slavery that means it's impossible for us to conceive such a thing uh, 8 million who are forced into sexual slavery 10.5 of those million are children and and we think about this we we who live in a place of freedom we can hardly conceive that such a thing still goes on. And not only goes on out there, goes on in our own streets where our children are being abducted and forced into terrible acts of sexual slavery. So I was thinking about all of these things and reflecting upon that and suddenly I remembered one of Paul's favorite words to describe himself. He often in his letters calls himself an apostle. But his... Second most frequent reference. Do you know what it is? Slave. Paul calls himself a slave. Romans chapter one one. He says, "Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus." Philippians chapter one one. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. Galatians chapter one ten. A slave for Christ. Uh. You might be, if you were following along in the Bible and and looking at those references, you might be a little surprised. Say, wait, Pastor Mark, it doesn't say slave. It says servant. In fact, most translations do say servant. But the Greek word for that word is doulos. Say that word. I want you to remember the word doulos. Doulos, without exception, without question, doulos means slave. I want to introduce you to a... A friend of mine from my seminary days. We call this Kittle because that's the name of the man who edited this work. This is one of ten volumes. It is the most comprehensive theological dictionary of the New Testament in existence. Everyone has access to Kittle, and uh, and what it does basically is work. Look at every single Greek word in the New Testament, and so when you turn to the the chapter on doulos, this is what Kittle, the foremost. Uh, editor in this area, this is what he says about Dulas. The emphasis here is always on serving as a slave, service which is not a matter of choice for the one who renders it, which he has to perform, whether he likes or not, because he is subject to the will of his owner now if that 's what Dulas means really, then why is it that our so many of our translations soften it and say servant or bond servant. And here's why. Because the word slave is so repugnant to us. It, it, it brings up such awful images for us. It transports us back to a dark, a dark chapter of our American history when we kidnapped more than 12 million human beings, shipped them in horrific circumstances, and caused them under lash and pain of death to work our cotton fields and tobacco fields. We are America, the land of the free. And this idea of slavery, it's repugnant to us, repulsive to us. We would much prefer and find more palatable servant, bond servant. And yet Paul says, I, Paul, a slave, a doulos of Christ Jesus. What we need to understand is that when Paul was writing those words, calling himself a slave for Christ, he was doing so in a culture that viewed slavery with the same revulsion that we do. Even more because it was a very dominant reality in their culture. For the Roman citizens, freedom was the great identity, the great identifying feature of what it meant to be a a Roman citizen. And every slave longed to be set free. They longed to be able to fight, buy their freedom, acquire their freedom in some way. That was their ultimate goal. And so you had this culture that was grossly divided with a minority of people who were the power people, the, the powerhouses who were the freemen, and the majority of society who were the subhuman slaves who were there to do the biddings of the master. This, the last thing that a Roman citizen would ever desire or ever imagine was the idea of becoming a slave to anyone. And yet Paul, a freeman, a Roman citizen, proudly calls himself a slave of Jesus Christ, a doulos, which meant to Paul, if the master ordered him to walk 14,000 miles to take his message to the world, he would gladly do it. If the master told him to go into places that were unsafe, he would do it. If the master said, you're going to suffer for me and for my glory, he would take the suffering and he would return to work. That's what a slave does. You don't question, you don't ask, you go. He was a slave of Jesus Christ. He was willing to go anywhere, do anything, suffer anything for the sake of the Lord. In a culture that ultimately valued freedom, Paul the free man was willing to become a slave of Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus Christ became a slave for him. When we turn to Philippians chapter 2, we come to one of the great Christological hymns, passages, in all of the New Testament. It is magisterial in its scope. Probably it is an old Christ hymn, and Paul translates it, captures it, and sends it to the Philippians. And it was intended to describe the incredible decision of God the Son to leave glory, leave his Father, and to come to earth to save us. And here's how Paul talks about this language. In Philippians chapter 2, he says, Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God... Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a doulos, a servant, a slave. What he's saying here is that Jesus, who had all the rights of divinity, did not cling to his godness. He did not clutch his divine prerogatives. He emptied himself. He gave all of that away. And though he was in the form of God, when he came to earth, he took on the form of a slave. A doulos. And there's no more vivid illustration of that than the Last Supper. Do you Remember? He got up. Jesus got up in the middle of the supper. He took off his robe. He took up a basin of water. And what did he do? He began to wash the filthy feet of every uncomfortable disciple. Why uncomfortable? Because this task was demeaning. It was beneath him. It was humiliating. Foot washing was the task set aside for the lowest slave on the totem pole. And if you happen to have a non-Jewish slave on your staff, that was the guy that was going to get the job. Jesus was the master. These were the disciples. And yet even the master would never expect his disciples to wash his feet. And yet here we have Master Jesus kneeling down as the God slave washing the feet of his disciples. And then in the ultimate expression of his self-imposed slavery, he was the one who was arrested. He was the one who allowed himself to be brutalized. He was the one who allowed himself to receive the lash. And ultimately, he was the one who allowed himself to be spiked to the cross. Jesus, the Son of God, gave himself to be a doulos, a slave, to free us from our bondage to sin. And when Paul experienced this breathtaking, sacrificial love on the road to Damascus, he was so smitten by the grace of Christ that he was willing to go anywhere, endure anything for the sake of the one who was willing to go anywhere and endure anything to save him. He was willing to enslave himself to his master because Jesus was Worth it. And this takes us back. As we've been talking about the scarlet thread. That that weaves its way through the story. This takes us way back nearly to the beginning of the Old Testament. To the book of Exodus chapter 21. Because there we read about slaves. And the rules around slaves. If you were a Hebrew slave. Who had to sell yourself into slavery. You would work for six years for your master. But in the seventh year you would be set free. It was kind of a mini jubilee. And of course, most slaves, when they had completed their six years of service, were delighted to go, to be free, to start their life on their own. But it turns out that there were some slaves who worked in the master's house who didn't feel that way. Over the six years, they came to love the master. They came to love the family, and they wanted to stay. And the only way for them to stay was to continue on in slavery. And so this is the ritual that they carried out in order to acknowledge this person who said, I want to be a slave to this family. They would call the judges of the town to be witnesses. And they would take the slave to the door of the master's house. And they would pull his ear spread it out and lean it up against, hold it up against the doorpost of the house and then the master would take a sharpened awl and drive it through the earlobe into the doorpost of his house. And with that blood and with that scar, that mark, there was no going back. For in that moment, in that act, you were marked as a slave for life. You could never change your mind. But he didn't want to change his mind. Because he had found in that place, in this master, someone who was worth giving his life to. He had found in this house a place of provision and protection. And he was happy to take the mark and to bleed the blood and to declare to the whole community, I will be a slave for life. You realize, don't you, that 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 is very similar to what it is we are doing when we have a baptism up here on Sunday morning? When someone says, I want to join the church, and you come and you are baptized, that is your entrance into the eternal relationship with this church family. We don't use awls, and we don't drive them through earlobes. That would be kind of messy. But that is exactly what baptism signifies. The old is gone, the new has come. And when you stand up to say, I want to be received into this community of faith forever, what is it that we are called to confess? The confession is and always has been this. Jesus Christ is Lord. And when we say Jesus is Lord, what does that mean? He is master. He is ruler. He is boss. And the corollary of that then necessarily means I am his slave. If Jesus is Lord, if Jesus is Master, if Jesus is my boss, then surely the corollary must be, and I am the slave of Jesus Christ. Problem is, we don't like that too much. We would prefer not to be the slave. We would actually prefer if Jesus would be our slave. We like that more. We like the idea of the slave Jesus who suffers and dies to take away my sin and save me from hell. We like the idea of the slave Jesus who takes away uh who jumps to my bidding, who who answers my prayers, who heals my diseases, who meets my needs, who blesses me. That's the Jesus we like. That's a lot more comfortable for us to think of Jesus as my save, as my slave. But that day has come and gone, beloved. Jesus the slave became Jesus the victor. Jesus the slave who suffered and died became Jesus the resurrected one. Jesus the slave who knelt to wash the filthy feet of his disciples is now Jesus the enthroned one before whom every human being will one day bow in adoration. Jesus, the slave, is once again Jesus, the Lord, who will one day render righteous judgment upon every single man, woman, and child. Jesus is no longer slave. That ship has sailed. Jesus, now, again, and forevermore, Jesus Christ is Lord. And of course, then that poses to us this great question. Is Jesus my Lord? Is Jesus my Lord? Do I trust him? Do I believe he can deliver me from the bondage I already know into his blessed submission? Do I believe him to be a good and loving master who is worthy of my trust, worthy of my devotion, worthy of a lifetime of service? Am I willing to take my earlobe, hold it up against the doorpost of the house of Christ and say, take the spikes that held you to that tree, drive them through my ear, draw the blood, make the scars because I want to be bound to you forever. The question we ask is, can I echo the words of Paul and say, I mark a slave of Jesus Christ. That is our only option. Slavery to a great master because it will either be slavery to sin or slavery to the Lord Jesus. Which master, which master would you Rather, serve. Jesus, thank you that you were willing to leave glory. You were willing to empty yourself of your godness and take on the form of a slave, a doulos. We are amazed that you were willing to to kneel before your broken, rascally disciples and wash their feet. And God, we confess that we often prefer to have your son be our slave. We want him to do all the goodies for us. We want him to take care of us. We want him to certainly to save us from going, hell, that doesn't sound like fun but we're not very willing to acknowledge that in fact he is Lord, we are the slave, and whatever he tells us to do, we do. That is a journey, Lord, for our whole life, but I pray in this moment, as we see it it reflected in the life of the great apostle, as we see it reflected in the life of the Lord Jesus himself, that we will be convicted of our lordship issues, and instead we will bow once again before the only one who is worthy, the only one who is good, the only master who is true, the Lord Jesus, and say, I am your slave forever.